Hello everyone and welcome to Fraser's Capital Podcast. In this episode, I'm having a chat with Mario Emanuel and we're going to talk about value. Mario, how are you? Great, Michael. How are you? Uh, good, thanks. So I think, yeah, let's dive straight into it. The, the article you pushed out last week, I think, caught a bit of attention. Um, super interesting idea about, about value and how people might not be looking at it in the best way. Um, Want to talk about it? Sure. I mean, I think the interesting part is everybody, a lot of investors have been schooled in the same way. Um, and it's very much a focus on, you know, originally it was a focus on PEs, after-tax earnings and earnings growth. Um, and then it was kind of this innovation where people started looking further up. You know, it's like, well, if you're investing a lot, of, if you're making a lot of money, then you're investing all of that, you know, building a new factory. It's probably not correct to call that a cost. You know, that's a decision that the manager has made to do with the cash. Um, and so then like metrics like EBITDA became extremely popular. You know, because then you separate the underlying earnings from the decision to spend it on growth, to pay down dividends, buy back shares, um, or pay down debt. You know, it's like quite a nice separation. It's very elegant. Uh, in many ways, that kind of that approach has underpinned the entire private equity boom of the last thirty years or so. Yeah. Um, and it's really become a conventional way of thinking. Um, and to the extent, I, mean, I don't want to say that most investors are looking at these things oversimplified because they're not, you know, looking at free cash flow generation. They're generally taking very highly sophisticated approaches. Um, but there is an instance, a very important instance, that those kinds of approaches miss. Um, and that is the case when a company can actually expense growth. Um, so taking a step back, you know, the best investment opportunities are those where you can invest, especially where companies can invest uh, and get a very high return on that investment. Absolutely. You know, that's like what Warren Buffett's always saying, what all the best people are doing. I mean, it's, it's just it's just how you compound, right? Yeah. So if you invest a dollar and you get 10 back, and then invest those 10, you get 100 back, and so on and so forth. Um, everyone's kind of broadly aware that the best investments display these characteristics. You can kind of, kind of derive that from first principles. Now, the interesting case that a lot of investors miss um, are those where that investment is going on above the EBITDA line. So there's effectively no EBITDA, um, which also means there's no free cash flow, um, which effectively means these things look ridiculously overvalued. Um, but the fact may be that they're still investing that dollar and getting 10 back. They're just doing it higher up. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think the distinction here is, is that with, you sort of move from a, a world where, uh, most growth investment is done on balance sheet onto where most growth investment is done on P&L and, I guess that's really a product of, of the internet, right? When you exactly. have zero marginal cost of your actual product or very low marginal cost of your product, most of your growth expenditure is in marketing or in sales or whatever else, and they're, they're all in the expense line. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, that, it's really that sales and marketing expense. Think about what specifically we're we talking about. We're talking about spending a dollar on you know, Google ads and getting a customer to sign up, you know, and people can get very sophisticated about those funnels. Um, and once you've got a product that's good enough, if you're like, okay, we can invest $20 and get a customer that's going to, you know, be, pay a hundred, um, you know, that's like something that you just want to pump as much money as you possibly can through. Uh, and a lot of these businesses do that. Yeah. And typically they like the best way is usually when they just spend all their revenue. So no more and no less. And that's exactly what ends up happening. And that's why you see these companies that make zero profits and zero losses, uh, for many, many years. You know, while going from $50 million revenue businesses to billion dollar revenue businesses. Yeah. And I guess, you know, 
number of examples. Amazon's probably the one that that jumps first firstly to mind. And I guess the, you know it, the the interesting thing is that the vent. This is something that the venture world is very comfortable with, and the metrics Correct. that they use to back their investments are very different to the ones you see in the listed equity space, you know, LTV to CACs and things like that, so which is lifetime value of the customer relative to the cost of acquisition. So everyone's focused on users. And then these businesses list and then these core metrics which underpin their valuations before they list sort of disappear from their investor presentations and their financial reporting. Exactly. You know, yeah. And it's like if you're marketing to yeah. a VC fund, you'd absolutely highlight those terms. That would be yeah. the first questions. Then typically they're kind of I guess in the public markets, the management teams just want to hide those. Like they don't want people, they stop, they don't want people to see their churn rates, you know, how many people are leaving. Cause obviously they have a bad quarter and the whole, everything's going to panic and drop 20 or 30%. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. And the fidelity on those numbers can be tracked sort of month to month, hour to hour, day to day. So, um, you don't yeah. really have an excuse for only publishing a quarterly number or whatever. And yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real sort of strange incentive yeah. structure. Which is interesting because these are, you know, these are some of the best businesses in the world right now. Absolutely. Um, so we've talked about the fact they don't have any earnings, but they don't have any capital either in the sense that they don't have any assets. You know, their assets are their customer base and the products they've built, which are largely intangible. It's not like they're buying land and they're, then they're, you know, building machinery on top of that. They're not doing any of that. So these yeah. companies like look really expensive on any kind of balance sheet analysis and also any kind of income free cash flow analysis. So it's just this entire, it's just interesting that you know, many of what we would consider the best companies in the world um, all fit this kind of characteristic, you know, yeah. the capital light and they can expense their growth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, if you, if you sort of thought about what type of business you want to invest in in the abstract, one where you don't need to keep investing in, you know, tons of capital into it and that returns many multiples of the, the little capital that you do put in is exactly what you want. But unfortunately, yeah, uh, it's not really reflected in the way that financial sense exactly well, it's just that it's just that way i think a lot of managers actually have that as part of their mandate you know, it's like we look at eps growth and eps and that is how we invest yeah but alternatively they'll often you know market the average ev ebitda of our portfolio is eight and the market is 12 you know that it's just the whole thing is just wired you know across the industry to look at these particular metrics yeah i think that's why it's been such a surprise to people to see things like you know shopify go up 20 times you know, um, whatever it was, and all these like crazy stories. I mean, think about Amazon. There's so much cynicism around that for so long. And you'd, it'd be hard to. I wonder if it, there'd be so few people that actually bought that and held that. Yeah. When you think about the it. whole the whole twenty year journey, and and I guess you know the the, the you know for, for, for someone listening, the thing is oh, okay. So you know that all of their expenditure is in growth, and then you know at some stage they've got to produce cash flow or or earnings or something. Um, you know, what stops them from doing it? And yeah, how do you think about that or or how do you think about the path to to getting there, which I guess is the... I mean, I think there's a few ways. I think in general, the best companies are ones that can keep investing and can keep growing. Yep. Uh, so what you don't want is to see a company go from 60% growth down to 20%. And that's typically when they'll start flicking on the cash flow generation. And that will actually be when the, you know, they've grown at 60% for five years. That is you know, that, that company's going to be 10 times the size. You know, right when it becomes, you know, a $10 billion company from a $1 billion company, that's when it will start showing EBITDA. But then the, the, the you know, the best part of the opportunity is gone. The real value creation was that 1 to 10. Yeah. You know, from then on, it might grind, you know, 
10 to 30% a year, it's still good. And like people can do very well out of those kinds of companies. But really like at that point where they switch off that growth investment, that's typically where you can see a dramatic decline in multiple um, mediocre performance of the stock. I mean, you can kind of see that now, you know, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, when these things were making less money, their stocks were doing extremely well. And now they're generating huge amounts of cash, particularly Amazon as well. And stocks have gone nowhere for a couple of years. Now, there's many reasons for that, yeah. but it's just an interesting kind of touch point. And so how would you value it? I guess there's many ways. I mean, we do long model, long-term models, and then typically you'll say, you know, the investment will slowly fade down. And then as you fade down that those costs, you slowly get you know, increasing EBITDA. Now, the fact is that these are all very conservative assumptions. You assume growth, growth declines. If a company does what you think it will do in terms of, you know, what you think the business is actually capable of doing, it'll actually exceed those. And the revenue growth will be much higher and the losses will be much higher and it won't make any money. Um, but it will also create more value. You know, that's the perfect situation. But you can say, assume that, you know, if, if it's a billion-dollar company and what would a billion dollars of revenue look like at steady state, but it's not spending insane amounts of money on sales and marketing. You, know, you can very quickly come to kind of evaluation. Yep. Um, and you can also, it's probably worth talking about sales multiples because everyone looks at sales multiples and these things can be extremely misleading. Yes. So a company, and I can think of a couple that grows through acquisition, should not be trading on 15 to 20 times sales because it's not organic growth. Um, they just have to keep buying to, to do it. On the other hand, if you think of a SaaS, SaaS business, firstly, the margins might be 90% or higher. And so sales is actually closer to gross profit. And when you say, yeah, gross margin. Gross margin, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, increasing revenue by 30%, you know, all else equal is like a 30%, you know, we've talked about this before, can flow straight down to the bottom line yeah. in some instances. Um, of course, it's not because it's invested. Um, but so you can see that, like, you can actually relate, you know, sales multiple, you can take the gross margin, and then you can make assumptions around what steady state, you know, sales and marketing, general administrative expense will be. You can say, right, steady state, this thing might trade at, you know, six to eight times sales conservatively, and that puts it cheaper in the market. You know, so if it's six to eight times sales, well, you know, over five years, we think it can grow at, it's growing at 50%. We think it might average 25 to 35 in the next five years. Again, very conservative relative to where they are. And so what does that sales number look like in five years' time? Um, you can then put, put the multiple on that and see what it looks like. Um, and typically, you'd be surprised, you know, it's very surprising how effective compounding is. You know, 50% a year for five years is a 10x return, yeah. roughly. Um, and 10x of, you know, that's, you can, you can afford to have a lot of multiple compression. So these stocks could easily come down from, you know, 15 times sales, Absolutely. seven and a half times sales, and still be outstanding five times returns over five years. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, on a business that's growing 50% year on year out of 15 times revenue multiple next year, if the price is the same, it's seven and a half year after that. You know that that sort of Roughly, automatic. Yeah. yeah if, if the price is if the price is sort of staying constant, your the, the multiple is compressing if these things keep growing. And so, um, yeah, you, I think you very conservatively end up at in, in pretty good place. I guess there's a you know there's probably another question which I was sort of mulling over, which is you know how do you distinguish between the good ones and the bad ones? Uh, you know we're we're in a place where. Uh, Peloton, WeWork, uh, IPOing amongst Zoom and Shopify and a few others. Um, I know you have sort of very different thoughts on all of these businesses. How do you think about quality amongst, amongst Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it's rocket science. I mean, like, yeah. you know, WeWork, no gross margin, negative. Shopify, you know, what is it, 55, 55%? Something like Twilio, Alteryx, 
you know, the really kind of high quality, genuine SaaS businesses, they're at 90%. So just doing that and, you know, kind of taking a look at gross profit, you immediately rule out, you know, a lot of the worst ones. You know, the interesting thing is, as we discussed, they don't really tell you the metrics you really want to know, yes. which is how many customers are you losing and how many are you gaining. Most of them will kind of like combine that into one number. Yeah. Um, so the best quality one companies have customers that are spending more and more each year. So Twilio, for example, which if you're not aware, um, does all the messaging behind you, know, Airbnb, WhatsApp, um, all that two-factor authentication, marketing. Um, they basically handle, they basically have deals with communication companies all around the world, and then they sell that as a really simple service. Mm-hmm. So even the largest companies generally say, okay, I just want Twilio to sort that out. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be their core business. They can deal with every change that happens in every country. We'll just, you know, interact with them, yeah. you know, through an API. So it's an API business. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I saying about Twilio? <laughs> Uh, you're trying to distinguish between high quality businesses and yeah, exactly. Yeah, so even those, even Twilio, so their um, their customers will spend forty percent more on average. So you have kind of two two compounding sources of growth: the fact that the average customer, even after taking into account the customers that leave, spends forty percent more each year, and then they're obviously adding customers every year. Absolutely. So you've got two two sources of growth. You know, when we model that out, we'll be like, okay, I think it's I think it probably maintain thirty five percent over the next five years. I generally think that, and that. And, you know, since each customer is spending 40% each year, 35% is potentially way below where it ends up. Absolutely, yeah. You know, if I run this through the models and, you know, assume like an, a fairly severe multiple contraction, um, you still come up with, you know, 4x return over five years, which is kind of, what's that as an IRR? I'm not sure. It's very high. I think it was uh, 39% or something. Yeah. Could be 29. Anyway, I don't know the model in front of me. Yeah. It's basically well above what you need to kind of make a lot of money in equity markets. Yeah, and and you know I think to to sort of make the the distinction from from a Peloton or a WeWork, you know, on that gross margin side, is that every customer you're not getting that enormous sort of uh, spend increase. So you're you're not they're not each customer isn't spending more. They're, they're sort of at best spending the same. If you lose them, you lose the entire chunk. Um, and so that that gross margin line is is there as well. Any anything else that you're really thinking? Yeah, sort of distinguishes the good ones from the bad ones or your Um I think in general, if, if a generic SaaS company with excellent metrics is probably not enough, I think you need more. Okay. I think um, the thing that I personally look for, and that's a feature of all of you know the fund's largest investments, is are they improving their economics with time? Because mm-hmm. um, frankly, that is probably the best test. So if their margins are going up with time and they're maintaining really high growth, that tells you you've got a really good business with really good economics. Whereas the company's growing at 50% or 40%. And again, we've discussed a couple. Yes. Um, but they're basically, their margins are exactly the same. You know, it's like minus 10% operating margin or something and has been for the last five years. You know, there's no guarantee of where that, that ends out. Yeah. So I think to really get that confidence to go big on something and make a meaningful position, take a meaningful position, you need to see that improvement. Yeah. So three examples, you know, Carvana, you've heard me discuss to no end. You know, they increased their car, their, their profit per car from 2,000 to 3,000 while doubling revenues. Yeah. So it's triple, triple digit growth and improvement in margin. Um, Pinduoduo like got operating leverage of, you know, 20%. So their margins impre- increased from very negative, um, admittedly, but, you know, increased by 20% year on year in a year where they, you know, grew at nine times system and almost tripled their size. Yeah. Um, Afterpay, which we've talked about before, you know, their loss rate went from 1.5 to 1.1%. Um, as, as a percentage of transaction yes. value. So again, you can in those three cases, you can see that improvement in economics. 
Um, and you do actually see it in the best SaaS businesses as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, what's 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 canonical SaaS business? Maybe Atlassian or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where that is actually extremely profitable now with very Absolutely. high profit margins. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of reached that point. So you don't need to guess about where profitability will be. You kind of know it. Yeah. And then yeah, and you've also then got sort of net negative churn. So that's you know which means that you on average you're adding every customer is adding revenue. Uh, the margin on each customer is increasing, um, and then you add on sales on top of that. And I guess the, you know, the the flip side of of something that looks like a great te- that looks like a great tech business but may not be is where typically I think you see this in sort of e-com plays where each customer costs you incrementally more in sales and marketing spend, and so as the business gets larger and larger. Um, this sort of your your earnings compress. Um, yeah, it's a good point and, and actually, that's, and that's actually the the sort of flip side of that, which is yeah, you know, with very large businesses that make sort of meaningful less money, and so yeah, so you've got um, so for example, let's say you're doing Google ad spending, and that's how that's your funnel. Absolutely, you know, the people that are most engaged and most likely to do it are going to sign up first. So you're going to spend more and more to get everyone. Yeah, at the same time, you're getting bigger and bigger, so you can hit this point where, you know, you're your acquisition cost accelerates and you've got a massive base from which to grow. Absolutely. Um, and again, that's, that's, that's not straightforward. But this is, you can see that like even just talking about these kinds of things, that is very different to a typical cash flow, EBITDA, valuation discussion. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so most funds will be thinking about things in that way, which doesn't really apply to these businesses, um, which is a shame because they really are some of the best opportunities. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, I think that, was the, that was the thing that struck a chord with me um, in the article, it's that you know this idea that, that the value is the the sort of distinction between value and growth is really non meaningful because the source of value is not necessarily visible on in financial statements, um, you know, and you have to actually do a lot of work on your own to to sort of find the find the real value in in, in your sort of unit economics. Like, yeah, exactly. How do you sort of dive into you know doing that work yourself to to sort of discern between the two? Uh, I think it's probably case by case. Yeah. And the, the really good one, the really good opportunities are really rare. I think there's some indicate, there's like certain things that kind of, like first of all, for example, if a company's growing 100% organically, I think it's worth the study. Yes. You know something's going on. You don't have to understand it. You have to know what Alteryx does. You have to know what Pinduoduo does. If you do know that people are using it more and more and it's hit some kind of chord. I mean, even Afterpay, I mean, how many people said they didn't understand Afterpay? You know, it's well probably would have behooved everybody to spend a bit more time. Absolutely. Um, whereas a company with 5% top-line growth and margins that have been exactly the same for the last 10 years um, is probably not going to be a phenomenal investment opportunity. Um, you're probably better off saving your energy for these other ones. Yeah. So I think like, the first thing is to be really selective about what you do your work on. Yeah. And just figure out what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that, was, you know, that, was, that was a lesson learned on Afterpay, um, which was you know, 10% of the Australian population had sort of joined this business within however many years, like three or four years of it being created, and you still had people in market sort of saying, "Well, I wouldn't use it; it's not really useful," um, yeah. or, or you know, whatever. And so I think, you know, watch the people talk with it. People sort of talk with their feet, really. And so when where customers are going, there's something going on. And I think you know, I personally got it wrong on Afterpay initially, and you know, until we sort of 
So did spoke, I. Spoke about it more deeply. At least it was like we kind of flipped around in 2017 instead yeah. of 2019. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think, and I think you know, the lesson was learned in It's not necessarily the type of product that you might find yourself using. Um, but, you know, the market talks. Uh, a lot of consumers yeah. move to it and you can't sort of... And these companies, it. these companies that, you know, a typical value investor always gripes about, they're... Um, Customers love them yeah. always. It's like Amazon. It's like no customer had to think, why am I using Amazon? It's like it's clearly the best. It's the cheapest. You know, it streaks ahead of every other you know e-commerce experience. Yeah. You know, up until now with the rise of Shopify and things, you know, there was no doubt in any customers' mind that they were doing great things. Um, but the investment community there certainly was. Yeah. Uh, I guess the yeah, you, there's traps. There's serious traps in this in these kinds of analyses. For example. One trap is to go for revenue growth. And so an example, that would be Zillow, which, you know, shifted their model. And so they've always had this kind of like, they always seem to like be talking about TAM, like the total addressable market. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very misleading because it should really be, you should really, it shouldn't be in revenue. It should be at least be in gross profit units. Yeah. Like what is the maximum gross profit that I can make out of this market? Yes. You know, revenue is absolutely like irrelevant. Uh, hey everyone, we actually got cut off last time. Um, so we're going to kind of move into part two of this episode. So how are you doing, Mike? Good, thanks, Michael. Uh, great. So I guess since we recorded that first part, there's been a bit of sell-off in some of the kind of typical growth names, um, particularly in the US. I mean, Australia, it's been kind of a bit mixed. You know, you can see co- companies like Nearmap, Appen, and they've fallen off 30%. Um, other companies like Halfpay perform very well. Yep. Um, Meanwhile, in the US, the software as a service business is down 25 to 35% in the last, literally the last two, two to four weeks. It's quite a big move. Massive. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in context, these are companies that have gone up, you know, 100 to 300% over the last 12 to 24 months. months. Sure. So, you know, it's it's a typical investing story where you're losing 25%, but you're making 250% on the other side. Um, So what do you think about all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, interested to hear how you think about about that sell-off and and where the you know the right entry price is when market sentiment turns away from hmm. from from tr- stocks that have been trading on a large level of men- momentum. So yeah, I mean it's kind of I find sell-offs like that kind of like December. They're very they have very particular characteristics. So if you think about who's actually active in these stocks, there's kind of two people at the moment. There's people who are selling because the price has gone down, especially the hot money. And it's like just a problem I'm always going to have to face where, you know, most of the stocks that I own tend to have a lot of hot money coming in and out, like pushing them up to extremes and then pushing them down to extremes as well. Um, so there's a lot of weak hands foldings. That's a first class. So basically, by weak hands, I mean as the price gets lower, they're more inclined to sell. Um, as soon as the price starts going back up, that kind of selling pressure subsides. So that's one characteristic. So one group of people. Second group of people is short sellers. So these are people who kind of think, wow, these things are up six times, like don't really care, the revenue is the fundamentals, are, like the business themselves, are three times larger, um, and these people can kind of smell blood in the water, um, and they're kind of shorting, and that's kind of why you see these like very sudden, you know, drops. Because effectively, the long-term fundamental guys have already bought; they're just sitting; they're not really trading in or out. This is all just stuff that's happening, pushing their portfolios around. Um, so when you have these periods, they kind of feed on themselves because the short sellers are selling; they get excited; they short more. Um, the people, as the, as the price goes down, more people are convinced to sell. Um, so what you get are like these very short periods, but very kind of sharp in the sense that the top to bottom is, can be enormous. 
give you an example, you know, Shopify went from 405 to 295 yep. um, in a few weeks. Twitter went from 150 to 105. Um, what's my other ones? Alteryx went from, I think it was about 145, back down to 105. And that's like, they're very short, sharp movements. Uh, but te- what tends to happen is those like high to low movements are extreme, but they're very short lived because sooner or later the stocks start come, hit some kind of level. Um, and start bouncing, and then both the short sellers and the uh, and the hot money um, both stop selling, and then the kind of people who are willing to buy a dip see some level of stabilization and start buying. So these things can also change very quickly as well. Yeah, I mean, how do you distinguish those that sort of dynamic from you know the the broader just general market fears that have sort of been circling around? And yeah, no, I think I think it's a momentum thing. I think there's. So the ones that when, when you see something's gone up a lot, you just know at some point it's going to run out of buyers. Typically, often that's it's at the end of the previous kind of short selling cycle. Um, so some of these companies are like textbook. You know, Twilio short interest rose massively. You know, this stock then went up. From, you know, from twenty five to one hundred and fifty yeah. over a couple of years. The short short interest went down and towards the top. You know, short interest started rising again. Now the stock's falling, and now short interest is like you know skyrocketed. Yep. You just know these people are going to have to buy these shares back at some point. Yeah. Um, how do you distinguish it? I think you. I don't think you play that game. I think you just you make money out of these kinds of situations by not playing the game. Um, so you have if you have you have to have some kind of firm idea of value. Yeah, you some, totally. You know, independent way of assessing these things, mm-hmm. irrespective of you know whether it's up twenty five or down twenty five. Um, and so I, how did we have? We, I probably had small positions in three of them, mm-hmm. and like slightly larger in Twilio. So we did get hit a little bit, but really they were like tiny positions. Um, really going to use this opportunity to get into some of these high quality names. Um, and they're basically, you know, your kind of where you think they'll be in five years hasn't actually changed. You know, if anything, you know, the last results for most of these companies was really good. That's what pushed them up to yeah. such extremes. No, exactly. And so it's kind of this wave and, and an underlying sort of market and technical dynamic. Um, I mean, are there any examples where you know the the weekends or the short interest wins, or uh, do they ever win? I guess I've always had a I've always thought of short selling as like I've said this to you many times like you win the battle but lose the war. So I think something like Tesla, like obviously that's down from its peaks. But how many people have made money out of that? Probably very very few. You know all those spikes, people have been stopped out. It's been very high like borrow cost. You've had to carry the position for a long time. Really, all, I'd say all the shots have lost. You know by now. Um, especially a lot of them were buying puts, um, often in quite serious size, often on three to six month, you know, views, which are quite expensive. If you roll something like that for three or four years, you know, you're done. You, there's, the yeah. stock can literally not fall enough for you to make your money back. Um, so do they ever win? I guess there's times when, I guess the best shorts are where like literally the bottom falls out. There's a lot of debt and the value cuts into the debt. So think of like the capital structure as having like debt, the base of debt, then your equity on top, which floats around. Um, sometimes companies are worth a lot less than their debt. And often there's like a moment where everybody realizes that, yeah. you know, what's, I'm trying to think of a good example. Valiant was one, you know, huge amount of debt. Basically they bought businesses, gutted them. Um, then the, the businesses kind of deteriorated. And then you just left with this mountain of debt that you have to pay back with cash. Yeah. All of a sudden it became very quickly apparent. It's going to be very difficult to do that, if, if, if at all. So you have a very material you know, de-rating. There's companies that have contracts that can vanish. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's business in the UK, phones for you. Yeah. Um, 
thousand examples. So it was a retail store. They didn't really have anything. They just had leases. They're not assets. They borrowed a bunch of junk debt against that. Yeah. Um, so when they got into trouble, there was like nothing there. You know, there's nothing on the other side. Yeah, no assets. Just like the promise, just a financial model that says that we will make money at some point. You know, that's not really enough. For, uh, it's not going to pay your bills. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So they do win. But in general, with these companies, these like companies with like, you know, Alteryx, 91% gross margin, growing at 59% a year organically. You know, what's another example? MongoDB, it's a database. You know, they've got um, one component of revenue is 30% of, you know, the pie. And it's growing 240% year on year. Again, relatively high gross margins. Um, is it likely to short wins on that long term? Absolutely no way. Yeah. You know, because they're just betting against something that's materially bigger, you know, every quarter, every release. Um, I guess there's this view that there's a view that these things have been bid up so high that there's extremely high expectations. I'd say that 25 to 35% fall across the board is kind of taking that out. So now as we go into the quarterlies, um, it's a very different look. It's a very different picture if say they rallied hard into this period. Then you've got very high expectations. Now they've dropped a lot. So everyone's actually facing the other way. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I wouldn't say I'd be very surprised if they fell further, yep. more than 20, 30% further. And that's because we're kind of reaching trough multiples of where we were in December 2018. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, to what, to what extent do you think that these sorts of businesses or well, how do you think about whether a business could be impervious to the macro conditions, you know, and, and how much do they weigh on things? I think, you know, lots of people will look at the overarching climate and say cycles getting really long, prices have rallied long for a, for a while, you know, the, re- the recession is getting closer and closer. Yeah. And people have been saying that for a while, obviously, but, and, but to what extent are, are some of these things... Can some of these things keep growing yeah, or it's, whatever? Like, it's a weird one. I mean, I think I don't think that affects the company at all. I think it does affect the share price. You know, yeah. I think it's, you know, what really gets you in the stock market are those panics where everyone just legs it down 30%, you know, scares everybody. You know, that's kind of the fear. And th- those things happen. There's probably been like multiple of those, multiple sessions like that mm-hmm. um, since 2009. So when people say there's been no recession, well, you know, if you're in small caps anywhere, you drop, you drop 30% last year on average. Um, if you're in Europe, there are times that got absolutely crushed. You know, 2011 was a very steep drawdown. Um, 2016, if you had, were in Asia, you, there was a very steep drawdown. Um, 2018 was pretty horrible for Asian tech investors as well. Absolutely. So there's been plenty of these kind of episodes where stocks, stock indices have dropped 20% or more um, without necessarily being a recession. Okay, maybe there was a little one in, the, in parts of Europe. Um, so I feel like the, the recession question is a bit of a misnomer. Um, would it affect... You know, the growth of these tech businesses, I mean, most of them have such small slices of the pie that they're going for, and they're so much intrinsically better, like cheaper, more flexible. See an example, say MongoDB. Yeah. So they do databases. It's new, software as a service. You're not locked in. The competition is, you know, old school relationship databases with Oracle. You know, Oracle is like very intense sales reps, very hard to get out of, huge lock-in, um, but they've been around for a very long time. Um, and they're obviously far bigger than all the upstart database players. Uh, you could definitely see a world where, you know, the upstarts do very well in a recession. Yep. Certainly in terms of revenue growth. Totally. You know, what their multiples do, of course, they're going to come down. Um, yeah, and I think it's an interesting point on, on, you know, flexible pricing being a, a relatively recession-proof dynamic, or, or at least if you're, if you're sort of under, underweight your full potential market share 
you yeah. can continue growing into growing, growing your your share of market if you if you provide your customers with the right level of flexibility to to be able to weather the storm. You know, absolutely. I mean, the, the companies that we're invested in, they typically have net retention rates of you know over thirty percent. So the existing customers are paying thirty percent more every year. Now, will that change in a recession? It's really hard to see how. You know, these aren't cyclical customers either. Yep. You know, it's not. There's a good reason these things are being bid up. You know, it's because they are kind of very good businesses. The other thing is, we've got this time aspect. If something's growing at sixty percent a year or higher. You know, it's ten to fifteen percent bigger every quarter. So, if you think there's going to be some wild recession that knocks everything down, um, you know, it has to happen pretty soon, or the companies can be so much bigger that it can afford to have a twenty or thirty percent contraction in multiple. So, when you look at these these software business in the US, short looks pretty nasty to see things go from one hundred and fifty to one hundred. You know, 400 to 280. Like they're big moves, but the real winners were the people that bought and held, you know, years ago. They're sitting on multiple, you know, three to six X, sometimes eight X gains. Yeah. So those people would just be sitting tight. Um, and I guess some of them will probably be selling as well. Yeah. Uh, into this dip, selling into the hole. Well, I guess that, you know, that, that kind of begs the other question, which is, you know, let's say you've played the, played the market right and you've been holding onto these stocks for a while. How, how do you feel where one of these, little dips are coming or is that something you don't spend any time thinking about because ultimately the game is a much longer horizon? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, I guess we've run two portfolios. One's had much less turnover and done much better. Um, the more you react to anything in the market, the worse you do it, just as a general rule of thumb. You know, you make money by investing long term and like riding these waves. Buying really high yeah, quality 60%. Businesses. Yeah, if you're worried about 35%, let's say something's down 30%. You know, could it let down another 20, 30%? Absolutely. Then that's, you know, now you're talking about four, five X sales. The last time these companies got there, they went up five to six times, you know, within 18 to 24 months. Yeah. You know, so do you fear, you know, it's really a case of risking the 25% drawdown to get the 250% on the back end. But really, you know, there's like a clock on this thing. So every minute that doesn't, sorry, every day that doesn't happen, the company's a little bit bigger, you're in a much better spot. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's like, whenever these things happen, the good companies will be fine. The bad companies that just rode the momentum up will not be. Yes. So an example of something that might not recover um, in terms of companies that everybody knows is Netflix. Yeah. So they got bid up aggressively. You know, it was a very widely owned retail stock. A lot of hot money in and a hot money out. They've had many sell-offs before. Um, in general, they've been great buying opportunities. This is probably the first one where there's been serious competition. So Disney's, you know, offering is going to be compelling. It's a fraction of the price. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other, there's, there's just a lot of attention at the moment. You've got Amazon, you've got players like Hulu. You know, it's just, it's just a lot of attention. And meanwhile, people are pulling their content from Netflix to okay. set up their own streams. And then Netflix is debt funded. So all of a sudden, you've got this like kind of whirlwind of reasons, um, that there may not be such exuberance over that particular stock. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, in my, when I look at these companies, I always assume the multi is going to contract. So if something's trading on 12 times sales, in general, let's say it's a high quality SaaS business. You probably put seven to eight X sales at least, if not lower, um, as a kind of exit terminal. So you're already assuming like 30 to 50% contraction multiple sure. over five years. Now, what happens if that, now imagine if that happens, you know, tomorrow and there's a massive sell off. All of a sudden you take the hit for sure and portfolio, portfolio would be down, but all of a sudden your return from there would be in line with the revenues. You know, if, if yeah. the multiple's not going to attract any further and it's growing at 60% a year, well, you're going to make 60% a year from that. And that will very quickly, you know, very quickly make up for that 30% loss. And it gets really exciting when you look. It's probably worth like talking about how you actually value these things. Yeah. 
Um, so I try and distill these things into two, two kind of variables that are real life variables that are connected to the actual share price performance. So that'd be kind of average revenue growth over five years, kind of an exit multiple. That's some very good stuff by like, you know, Mauerson about multiples. I uh, highly recommend you listen to his podcast if you want to hear a great pronunciation of EBITDA. Um, but it's basically like, the idea is you can use sales multiples, but you have to, you have to know what goes into them. So a company like Carvana, which, you know, will end up with 10 to 15% EBITDA margins, is going to have a very different sales multiple to something like Alteryx, which is at 90%. No, yeah. You know, and Shopify, which might be 50 to 60, uh, maybe higher, maybe lower, depending on how the business mix evolves. You know, that's going to have a different multiple again. But once you come to some idea of where those multiple, sorry, where those margins are going to end up, then you can convert that into a sales multiple. And all of a sudden, you can very quickly compare and convert um, valuations. So typically what you'll do is you'll model it out. You'll put in, oh, this is what I do anyway. I'll put in an average growth rate. I'll put in an exit sales multiple. And then I'll flex those two things. So you think about deck 20, December 2024 is roughly five years ago. So you can basically draw a table with all the different ranges of exit multiples, you know, say from five to 15. Yeah. Um, and then all the different growth rates, you know, zero up to whatever they're growing at now, which could be as high as 40 or 50%. And then you know, like when I say it's connected to the real world, it will have a sales multiple in December 2024 and it will have an average growth. Yeah. So those are real numbers that will actually be, you know, realized in the market. Um, so somewhere in that table is the reality, the outcome. Uh, but those tables give you a very good guide because you can very quickly look at them and say, right, if this thing fades down like aggressively, are we going to make two to three X or are we going to like get our money back or are we going to be negative? Um, and in general, you see just because the nature of compound growth over five years, you know, if something's growing 60% now, that can drop to zero over five years and still average, you know, a very high number. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you can actually assume that these businesses lose all their momentum, their customers Either, you know, either they start losing customers, but you know, you, the customer exchanges, whatever, um, the growth slows down to zero, they can still be excellent investments and they'll still end up on your map. Um, so that's kind of how I do it. And it's very, uh, the good thing about this is it really changes with the market in the sense that your input is actually the current market cap or current enterprise value. Um, and so as these things drop 20, 30%, all of a sudden these tables just change. You know, if you color code them, they go from being like half red, half green to like almost all green. Yeah. It's exactly what should be happening. So I find it's very like robust, very quick. And there's so many little tweaks to it that you need to know though. For example, one that catches people out uh, is stock-based comp. So some of these companies will issue, you know, 3 to 5% a quarter. Yeah. And some of them will issue 1%. And so when you do your sales growth, it should really be sales growth accounted for, you know, your annual dilution. But again, that's just a shorthand way. Just by fixing it that way instead of, guessing how many shares are going to issue in 2023. Yeah. Um, you've kind of like distilled it all into two variables that you can then think about really carefully and really clearly, you know, what multiple should this business trade on at maturity um, and what growth rate will it be able to maintain. Yeah, and I guess the other important thing to, to say there is is that typically these businesses also have very clear sort of target EBITDA margins or gross margins that they're sort of shooting towards or a are achieving and have been achieving for a while, and yeah, know, I mean, which, is, which is exactly. how the market sort of looks at those. I mean, now management will often tell you what they're targeting. Yeah. Um, but really, the key, the clincher for me is if, if it's moving in the right direction. I can't really care, care less about where the target is. More like, is their operating margin, you know, improving quarter on quarter? Like, can you actually see that 
that flex, that operational leverage. No, no, absolutely. I mean, more yeah. in terms of fe- feeding that than into your yeah sort of multiple the, range and where 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 these things are likely to fall. Yeah, Smart exactly. It's on the other side of with the revenue growth, etc. Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you something. You see one right now is Carvana. So that dropped twenty percent last month, which is not ideal. But it's also dropped down to the multiple that it traded at um, right at the bottom in December 2018. Now, revenues are like almost twice as large. So it's the share price is up a lot. Um, but that was kind of where in the heat of that panic, it bottomed out. You're looking at something like 1.5 times sales next year. And that is the kind of multiple that you'd expect Carvana to be able to maintain. It's 1.5x sales, a 10% margin. You're looking at 15 times EBITDA. Um, or you know you can yeah. adjust those numbers either way, um, but if that's if you can maintain 1.5x sales, then your future return from here is the return is the revenue growth. The revenue growth right now is over 100 percent a year. Exactly. Um, so your return is going to be very good if that that plays out as expected. Now, Kavana is another one where there was huge short interest. You know, I think I, I think I've told I tell people that was, I think it was over 70 percent of the free float was short when I bought it, and that like roughly halved, and now that it's shot straight back up. Um, and that's caused that sell-off. Uh, but those people can have to buy it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, at some point. So it's a pretty interesting point. It's just an interesting time. It's, it's interesting that we we're talking about these stocks. Yeah. Now they've come off. And it's just like reframe the way we can look at it. Or we can reframe the discussion um, and talk more about opportunities as opposed to... Yeah, you know, why, just why they've gone running in the first place. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good. It's, it happens very rarely. You know, often you watch these things for... 18 months and they just grind up and you either have to like jump in or just watch it. Yeah. Um, this is one of those moments, you know, we have a bit, fair bit of cash at the moment where these things are selling off and like in the short term, it's going to be nasty. You're going to have to pick up things dropping at, you know, a few percent a day. Um, but in the long run, these things will find a bottom um, and then they'll almost, serve, we might even be passing now. Yeah. Um, and then the returns typically from after these periods is very high because you've got your trough, your trough multiples, you might get 50% expansion on the trough multiple, and then you might get you know 30 to 60% revenue growth on top of that, and that could be a 12 to 18 month outcome. So it's a very exciting time. Sounds very exciting. And that wraps up another episode of Fraz's Capital Podcast. If you want to hear more about uh, what we do or read more about what we do, you can go to our website at www.frazzescapitalpartners.com. Uh, that was a conversation with Mario Emanuel. I'm Michael Frazzes, and I hope you have a great week.